I don't believe in no one's scenarios. Data, 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 I cannot make bricks without clay. I don't know where you get your delusions, laser brain. <laughs> Hello and welcome to a special Cheeky Scientist radio show. Today we're focused on how to get into a medical writing career, uh, which is an umbrella term for many different job types. And I'm very excited uh, to have with us Alejandra Viviescas, who is a medical writer, and she got her uh, bachelor's and master's from the National University of Columbia, went on to get her PhD from the University of the State of Sao Paulo, Alejandra, how are you? Great to have you with us today. I'm perfect, uh, Isaiah. Thank you for having me. Yeah, really excited to talk about this career path. This is our first uh, radio show, our first podcast, uh, certainly, where we're going to have a chance to dig into what the transition into a medical writing career is like, what kind of PhDs are drawn to that, and really just hearing your story of transitioning out of academia into these medical writing roles. You've worked as both a, a writer and an editor uh, at different, uh, for different companies, services, bio news services, Cactus Communications. I'm um, excited to hear about how this field is changing. And I thought a good place to start would be just to define what medical writing is. I think a lot of us, as we're finishing up our PhDs or maybe we're in a postdoc, we look at this career, we initially have some misconceptions. Uh, it's a clinical role. Uh, you need to have English as your first language, et cetera. We don't really know what it is beyond writing and editing. How, how would you describe it if you were talking to yourself five years ago? Oh, that's a tough question because medical writing is, as you said, an umbrella term, and there's so many positions that fall into that term. So I would say anything that has some relationship with, with communication and science would, is going to fall into this medical writing term. So you can, as you said, I have experience writing and editing, so you can write and then you can also trans, translate. I've worked as a translator before as well. Uh, you can organize events, but everything that's communication focused, and it's not just clinical. If you, you can think about science outreach, all of these initi initiatives, it all falls into the medical writing umbrella. So it is really a broad term and it can fit many styles of PhDs, many different people and backgrounds, all of it. Like you've said before, and I like when you say it, it's, it's a position that can serve as a safety net for almost every PhD because as PhDs, it's almost impossible that we can't find a position be within this medical writing field that we can excel at. I, I completely agree. I think no matter what you got your PhD in, you had to uh, learn at a higher level, both writing and editing uh, and, and just collecting information and data in general. And we're going to come back to what medical writers do on a day-to-day, -day, the different types of medical writing, et cetera. But I, I want to hear about you personally. What drew you to the medical writing field? What was that moment where you realized that this was the field for you um, when you were in academia? Yeah, well, I'm going to start by telling you why I decided to leave academia. So I started my PhD as many of us, uh, hoping and dreaming of being a tenure professor someday and having my own lab and all, all this stuff that are pretty common. Yes. And then, Right at the middle, like I was in my second year of my PhD, which took four years, I discovered that I wasn't happy. I didn't like the environment, I didn't like the culture, and I really, really didn't like the bench. Um, the, this thing about doing experiments, and there were, I, I could never replicate uh, a result. It was so frustrating and I've come to know, at the moment I felt alone and as a failure, but I came to know that many PhDs feel that way at some point that they're doing experiments a thousand times the same experiment just to see that there's no, it's not reproducible whatsoever. Mm. And it's so frustrating. And 
I came into a very dark place when I felt like a failure. I felt like if I wasn't good at the bench, I wasn't good at anything. And well, like it, it drew me to, a, to some depressive times. I, I had a lot of anxiety. I didn't even feel I could finish my PhD because I, I lost faith in my research. And so I started to search for other opportunities. I, I basically decided that I was going to find something, that there had to be something at, at the end of that four-year mark when I got my degree that would make me happy. And I, I, I had to contribute some way to the world or something and just find happiness in what I did. And so I started looking at what aspects of my PhD I enjoyed the most. So bench work wasn't it, but I discovered that I was that PhD in the lab. Like, like you said, I did my PhD in Brazil. So I had one of the most, like I was the best English speaker in my lab. And every time we had a paper or a conference, poster presentation, uh, my colleagues would come to me and just ask if I could review their, their papers or their materials, just to correct their English, to give them feedback of whether or not it was well written, just because their English wasn't so strong as mine was. And that's something I enjoyed so much. Like I could happily put over an hour to start a, a, a lab experiment, just to go over a paper with somebody, even if I wasn't an author on that paper. That's just because I enjoy that. And that's when it clicked. Like I had these good communication skills and that was something I actually enjoyed. Writing reports um, or papers or poster presentation, even my thesis. I've heard many PhDs talk about the, those months they had to stay at home just writing their thesis down, being frustrating. Those were the best times of my PhD. I had no problem. I could start writing at 8 and stop writing at 11 and being productive the whole day, which was wow. such an amazing experience. And I could, I could do that like two months in a row. I was like, there's something here. Not everybody has this focus, this capacity and this enjoyment for just analyzing data and, and sitting in front of a computer all day long. <laughs> so I said, okay, yes. let's go, let's go see what options are in communication. By that time I was already a member of the Chiki Scientist Association and I started connecting with other Chiki's who were transitioning into medical writing, science communication and started getting this full idea of the, in the full scope, all the possibilities, and, and I felt alive again. Just to have all these options where I could contribute and, and enjoy work again, it was so amazing. I, I decided that's what I wanted to do um, when I finished my PhD, and I, it actually gave me a lot of strength just to finish it, because I saw the light at the end of the tunnel. And so, yeah, basically that's how I came to medical writing. It's an incredible story. And I think it's something that a lot of us have experienced in part. Uh, you know, I, the couple of the points that resonated with me, and I know a lot of the listeners uh, will resonate with it, as well as just having this false expectation in the, the lab. Uh, for some PhDs, it might be in the classroom on what, is what is supposed to happen, especially in, for those of us that have worked in a lab where we're trying to reproduce results and data. Um, you know, if, if somebody, if our PIs or our mentors had come to us and said, hey, there's a, a reproducibility crisis <laughs> that's happening, uh, you know, 70% of the time you're not going to be able to re reproduce an experiment. If somebody had said this to us, I think it would have helped us not feel like such a failure uh, when there's just, you know, you're doing the experiment, like you said, over and over and over again, and you can't reproduce it. Uh, very likely, it's not reproducible. Uh, there's been a lot of studies just over the past few years that, that have looked at this. Uh, there's a, a really 
really good publication that reviews this in Nature uh, by Monia Baker um, that was published a few years ago that kind of started the ball rolling. And, and, you know, since then, a lot has been published, depending on what statistics you look at, it's anywhere from 60 to 90 yeah. percent uh, of experiments are are not reproducible. And that, I think, would have changed our approach and our expectations a lot, our experiences a lot as, as grad students, as postdocs, et cetera. Um, what, I, what I love about this, your story, too, is that you, you had this moment where you realized, I love doing this because I can spend a lot of time doing it, and it doesn't feel like I'm spending a lot of time doing it. Like, I get, you get into this flow state, this zone, and for you, it was writing. Um, I experienced something similar when I was doing my thesis, the writing part of it, um, that it was enjoyable. And I, I think there's a lot of PhDs who would find joy in that. And it's no surprise that um, more and more PhDs have been hired into medical writing roles. And, and I think the good news here is that there's also a need for it. Sometimes we just, you know, I like going for walks in nature, but nobody's paying me to do it. <laughs> so it's not just if you like it, there also has to be a need for it. And there is a huge need right now, especially with more and more remote work, more and more uh, companies, you know, since the pandemic moving towards a decentralized workforce model, uh, the, the, the communicating through content, especially online content has become more valuable. So thanks for sharing that story. I mean, uh, I'd love to extend it a little bit further and talk about how you initially started to seek out medical writing opportunities and what were some of the early wins that you had? You know, I know for you, you started to get some deals as a, as a freelancer writer. Uh, what was that process like and, and what started giving you more confidence that this was a career you could uh, really jump into? Well, yeah, the first thing was networking because uh, the second crisis that I went through in my transition was realizing that I wanted to do all this communication, but also it was pretty clear to me that most of the opportunities were going to be in English. Like, even if you do translation, it was English to another language. And then I, I had this crisis of, well, I'm Colombian. I've never, like, I did most of my studies here in Colombia and I did my PhD in Brazil. So I've never studied in, a, in an English speaking country. I've never lived in an English speaking country. I learned English because I love languages and, and, and basically watching like series and Fox. <laughs> and some yes. channel and that stuff. But I felt like my English would never measure to a native English speaker. And that was going to jeopardize my opportunities to break into a communication-based role. So I started networking and I found other people who had transitioned. And of course, and this is something that can, might resonate to other PhDs, when you're trying to put the pieces together in your transition and you see somebody who already transitioned, it's like, what, what kind of God is this person who, <laughs> who got out of academia? But like, they have to have something I don't because they make it, we've made it and I will never do this. And I started talking to them and listening to their stories and I realized, no, these were just people like me and I, I reach out to other people who also were not English speakers. And sometimes they also didn't speak Spanish. So we had these conversations and I had my accent and they had theirs. And, and they, they gave me the confidence that I could break into the, the field, even not being an English speaker. And with that confidence, I, I still had like a year in my PhD I started to, this is also uh, an advice that I got from Cheeky Scientist. I, I started picturing not the position I wanted, but the lifestyle I wanted. So what was important for me? How did, it, did I want to live once I finished my PhD? And I identified two things that were important. Um, the first one is I wanted to go back to Colombia and spend some time with my family. Uh, I made my husband in Brazil, he is Brazilian, and we married there, there, but my family didn't get a chance to um, 
like know him as I got a chance to interact with his family and we wanted to have that. So it was important for us to spend some time in Colombia. But I knew as much as I love my country that the amount of opportunities uh, are not as much as other countries. So I decided to focus on remote positions and clients all over the world who were willing to work with me on a remote basis. And knowing those two things, uh, I started to set up my network and my clients so I could start reaching out to them the moment I finished my PhD. So I started to ask with all other medical writers who were in those freelance and remote arrangement, how, how they found their clients and if they had some clients that they could recommend to me. And so I started doing all, setting up all this strategy, even though I, like, all my final year of my PhD, I was like finishing my PhD and all my free time, I would put my efforts towards creating all this strategy and have like a spreadsheet of clients I could reach out to the second I was free of my PhD. And that's what I did. Like I started reaching out, like I defended on a Thursday and on Monday I started reaching out to clients. Wow. And what? I got my first client less than a month after defending my PhD. Actually the day I landed in Colombia to start this new chapter in my life. Well, that's incredible. And you know, for those of you who may not understand uh, you know, the phrase freelancing in this context, it's a, it's a very normal thing to do in the medical writing field and for a lot of different careers. I mean, even data science, uh, there's, you could be a data science, data science consultant and you might think you need some special training for that, but you don't. You can move right into that. And the process you'll go through, it's not any easier or harder, I would say. The process you'll go through is very similar to uh, transitioning by finding a company. You have to recruit a company to hire you. In this case, you have to recruit a client, uh, a company client in many cases, to to hire you for your services. Uh, so the same thing, it's same in either way. You're, you're promoting yourself and your skills for this. Uh, and it requires networking and reaching out, like Alejandro said. Alejandro, what I want to ask you about is how you made that shift specifically though. I want to get, we're going to get into medical writing and how to excel in that career track and the different types, et cetera, what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. But I think for a lot of us, like you said, we look at people who have transitioned when, when we haven't yet and we see them as kind of these, you know, amazing people, these gods, how did they do it? They're so far beyond me. Um, and, and you said you felt that yet something happened. There was a trigger that made you shift your mindset. Like you said, you went from the limiting beliefs of, well, I have to, you know, be better at English or I, you know, I, I have to be from a better country or whatever limiting beliefs others might have, right? Their PhD background, et cetera. Like somehow you went from having those beliefs and not thinking you could do it or thinking you were far away from being that successful person who could transition or could, who could get clients to committing and to giving everything you had to reaching out to start taking massive action and then to make this happen for yourself. You started, you, you, you focused on the how, like you said, uh, and you, start, you, you focused on the, the lifestyle that you wanted, the professional lifestyle that you wanted. You even focused on where you wanted to live, uh, Colombia. So what, what changed? Was there a specific moment where you decided to push past those limiting, limiting beliefs and to commit do you happen to remember that moment or was it a series of moments that really made you, um, you know, not take no for an answer in a sense and say, this is the career path I'm, I'm going to do. And I'm, I'm going to network, even if it's painful, I'm going to reach out, even if it's painful, I'm not going to waste any more time. Yeah. I think it was the last thing you said. Like I, I set a goal. Like, I, I knew I wanted to come back to Colombia, have a remote work, and I also, well, the thing is, as I said, you have so many options with medical writing. Um, I wanted to experiment different types of writing before I commit to one of them. And that's also why I decided not to search for um, like a remote position full-time, which also exists in medical writing, but to try and recruit different clients because I wanted to experiment all the flavors and see which one I liked the most. But it was that, like, I set a goal, and then with that goal in mind, I, 
I decided to get all the resources and put all my energy to make that happen. So once I had that goal, I broke it down into smaller steps. And I put goals for myself every week. And, and that made it so simple because, of course, I, it wasn't happening in a week that I was going to have this successful career. But what I could do in a week was reach out to a client or enroll in a course for, to have a certification that I was an, an editor in so-and-so language. Or those were things that I could do. I could commit to do those in a week or in a month. And just putting, like, setting that goal and breaking it into smaller goals that were achievable in a short term helped me keep going. So I, I don't know if this answers your questions, but in terms of setting up that strategy, that's what helped me. Yeah, and I, I think for, for those of you listening, sometimes we want to wait for complete certainty uh, in terms of if I put this effort into my job search or if I put my effort into going after this career path, it's going to pay off. You have to act before you have that certainty. You have to create that certainty in a sense um, by just through repetition and, and through uh, more knowledge and, and through networking. Uh, so, so Alejandra, you, you got your first client. What, what was it like? So this is where we can get into the day-to-day -day of a medical writer because really whether you look, work for a large company, a small company, for yourself as a medical writer, you're going to be you know, writing and editing and you're going to be interacting with stakeholders. And that's a key piece that a lot of PhDs don't think about. Uh, you get paid more if you have the ability to communicate with stakeholders to be client facing that that in combination with your your technical skills your writing skills your other higher level skills as a phd is what makes you so valuable in industry so with that first client or one of your first clients what was the interaction how did they communicate you know what kind of brief did they give you in terms of how did they explain the, the writing or editing job they were looking for? How much work did you do on your own before having them check it off? Uh, how are your deliverables set up? How did you manage your time? Any of these insights I think would be useful. <laughs> okay, so all of this changed from client to client, but I'm, I'm going to try to give a general view of how it was. The first thing that was very important for a client, and it's super important if you want to go into medical writing, it's an understanding of the audience. So who is going to read those deliverables, be it a poster or an, um, an article or a blog post that I'm going to write or that I'm going to edit, who is it for? Is it for uh, other academics? Is it for patients or doctors or like, healthcare professionals? Is it for the general public? And this is super important because all these groups have different um, knowledges and have different goals when they're reading your content. Like, for example, if um, my first client was actually reviewing articles for non-academic, um, for no, no, it was academic articles for non native English speakers. So basically doing the same thing that I was doing in my lab with my colleagues. These were articles that weren't very well written because the person who wrote them wasn't good at English. So I had to go through and make sure it was in the end written in a, an, an academic English that uh, an editor in, a, in an academic journal would understand. Or my second client was completely different because it was small blog posts for patients with chronic diseases. And that's the first thing. Like, what interests a patient is not the same thing that's going to interest an editor in a journal. So the language, your approach, the amount of data, the amount of jargon that you can use, that changes a lot. And that's why it is so important to understand your audience. And every client that I had, the first thing they wanted to make sure is that I understood the audience. And then what, what it would look like is they would give me a brief. Sometimes I would um, meet with them and they would uh, go through all the things that were important, what things I had to consider for this specific assignment or not. 
And I would create a draft and it would go through revision and fact checking. And when that was good, sometimes it would come back to me if there were some uh, new things that I had to write. And so on, sometimes I would just get the feedback, like it was good enough, so we move it to the next phase. But for future assignment, please consider this and this and this. And the thing is, these were recurring clients, so I did a lot of assignments for them, for example, with Bio News, which is the one where I wrote blog posts for patients. I would write one blog post per day for them. So every time I would take that feedback and apply it to, to the next assignment I, I would have with them. So that's basically it. It's, it's a matter of communication, understanding the audience, doing your job and taking feedback. And you have to take feedback as something like they're not trying to tell you you're not good enough. They're just trying to make you better and not only a better writer, but a better writer for them. Like if you get some kind of feedback, like this was perfectly written, but it was not, it, it wasn't a language that wouldn't speak to patients. Well, that missed the point, even if it's perfectly written. So that's the kind of thought you have to deal very well with feedback and know how to implement that in future assignments. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of the keys that's not discussed enough. As PhDs, we, we want to hear about, you know, the, the, the writing itself, the collecting information, the editing, the technical side. Uh, and this is really true of any job that, that PhDs are trying to get. And we don't think about the... Uh, what might, some might call a, the soft skill of dealing with those stakeholders and the clients and not being defensive. If you show that you are defensive in getting feedback on your writing, which many of us are, uh, myself included, it would took a long time to hear negative feedback on your writing without taking it personally because when you write something, it is very personal. We learn to make it personal to us because we spend so much time on it. And we, we, in many cases, we created the information or the data that's going into a paper uh, in academia. So you have to detach yourself from that a bit and you have to start focusing on your audience. You know, what, are you writing in a way that's best for them? We did this naturally in academia by learning to write for uh, reviewers, whether grant or paper reviewers. We learned to write in a more sophisticated way. You know, even the transition words, like using uh, the word moreover or furthermore, right? You see that, that kind of... Uh, language, even, even in a sense, nomenclature is common for academic writing. Uh, so there, you know, writing for academics is one of the target audiences. We have the big five target audiences that we talk about in one of our Cheeky Scientist Advanced programs, uh, the Medical Writing Organization. Academics is one of them. Uh, Alejandra's hit on some others. Uh, you know, number two is patients. Number three is the general public. Number four is regulatory bodies such as the government. Uh, and then number five is healthcare professionals, uh, clinicians and other, other healthcare key opinion leaders. And you can see how writing for uh, an MD or an HCP uh, versus a patient that they're caring for is going to be different. The general public, and, you know, they may know that DNA is a double helix. You might need to uh, address that in your writing, where if you were writing for a, uh, an academic journal, uh, you, you wouldn't have to spell as much out. So uh, understanding how to write for an audience is important. I, I want to ask you on, in a similar vein, what about the different types of medical writing? So yes, your, your writing is defined by your audience, but just like any other form of communication, there's a second part to it. Uh, the, the purpose of the writing or the type of writing, whether it's regulatory, marcoms, medical marketing, uh, medical journalism, or medical education, how do, how do those different categories, um, I guess, how do, you, how do you explain those different categories to someone who's just starting to understand the medical writing field? How would you explain the spectrum of regulatory writing versus non-regulatory writing? More educational content versus a content that's not as educational, content that's more marketing versus less marketing, and so on. Okay, yeah, that's another important one. I there are different ways of the, dividing those, but I see four. The the first one is medcom or medical communication, and this is the kind of um, 
like in these kind of roles, your clients or you are going to work for a pharma company or some, or you're going to work for a CRO that works for a pharma com company or has clients in a pharma company. And what we're going to do is write their articles and their poster presentations and that ki those kind of deliverables because in industry, it's super important that if you're carrying a clinical trial, for example, you have set dates where you have to um, present your, your results in a Congress or um, another type of public gathering. That's something you have to do in order to keep your trial going. And this is what Medcom, like medical writers in Medcoms, they, that's why they do. Because in industry, you're, the people gather the data, but they won't write the articles or they won't write, create the slide decks or the posters. They will hire medical writers to do that. So people in Medcoms take all this data and create the deliverables. So you're going to be working with somebody else's data, which is different from academia but you're going to create the same deliverables that you created in academia. So that's Medcom. Uh, in terms of regulatory, and this is a huge branch of medical writing, um, you're going to be writing for the regulatory bodies, as you said, Isaiah. So basically like FDA, EMA, Health Canada, depending mm -hmm. on your country or where you're like the, the clients of, of the company you're working with. And these are regulatory documents that go like from the, the forms that you have to fill to start a clinical trial or to ask for a product to be approved for commercialization to patients forms for participation in a clinical trial to the label that's going to go in your product. All of those fall into this regulatory writing category. Then you have the medical journalism part or science journalism. And this is writing science for the general public. So it's what you see the science columns in like the BBC or um, you see those in other news outlets. That's the kind, that's also medical writers who do that. And this is for the general public. And then you have education and marketing. And that is, well, education is more like to help educate people in your company. So it's like to create the liberals, to teach MSLs about new products and that kind of stuff. So it's more internal. And finally, marketing is all of those, like the blog of a company or all of those things that are a company makes to the public. That's a marketing part of medical writing. And this is all medical writers who do them. Perfect. And I think by considering those two things, if you take a minute, a minute right now to understand the importance of for whatever you're communicating, whatever you're writing, you have to consider your purpose and your audience. Uh, in this case, uh, your, you know, your purpose is your deliverable, um, the type of writing document that you're either writing or editing whether it's a, a marketing communications document or a regulatory document. And I always like to give the example of, uh, you know, writing the information that's on a bottle of Tylenol or Advil. There are medical writers that do that. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, when I worked uh, at a company, one company that I worked with in industry, they hired PhDs on their social media team. The entire social media team, it was under the marketing communications department, all had PhDs. One PhD's job was to manage uh, the 10 or so different Twitter accounts that this company had. Uh, there was like a Twitter account for a, diff a couple of different products and different departments, etc. cetera. Uh, so you can see the variety of jobs that are available uh, to you if you want to get into medical writing. Um, I, I want to talk about the different job types. You mentioned early Alejandro that you can manage events, you know, virtual now, of course, or otherwise uh, later. Uh, you can be a translator and so forth. There's lots of different opportunity and there's lots of different sectors you can move into after medical writing. Um, but I want to ask you a question. I, I had somebody pose this to me from our, our flagship program, the Cheeky Scientist Association. Uh, they were looking to get hired into a job. They had struggled uh, to find the, the specific career path that they wanted to, which was a, a very competitive job. So we talked about 
having them expand their job search and looking at medical writing jobs, especially, you know, so close to after the pandemic, because medical writing jobs is one of those rare jobs that was surging. It can be done from home. It can be done remotely. Companies pay a lot for this now, uh, especially for PhDs where they get, uh, they get, it's almost like they get two or three employees with one employee because they, they not only can, they have the, you know, regulatory awareness or a high level uh, of skills in terms of data or information analysis, uh, the great work ethic, of course, information processing, but they, they're highly skilled writers and editors. Um, they're highly skilled project managers, right? So they're getting a project manager on top of that. They're getting a, uh, a researcher on top of that too. Um, and what this person asked me is they started applying to medical writing jobs. They got a few different offers and they were really shocked to see how much medical writers can make and that they can make this working from home, from anywhere. Like we have a lot of medical writers, you know, in our association or in the advanced program, the medical writing organization who do work from home. You're able to work in Columbia. So what, how, how do you explain this to somebody? Why? I guess the specific question I had written down was, uh, and we will probably make this the title of the, of the radio show here, why are PhDs paid so much to work from home as medical writers? So if you had to answer that question in terms of what makes a PhD so valuable for this role over other job candidates, what would you say? I guess because, well, there are two components there. Uh, the first one is the writing part, and I guess as PhDs, we we tend to underestimate the importance of those communication skills that we get, and also the amount of information that we can pro process and synthesize. That's something that we give, like we take for granted because we have PIs telling us that uh, it's never enough, <laughs> but. In reality, and compared to other people, the ability to read three papers in a day and create a summary, that's pretty rare. Yes. And that's something that we do all the time as, as PhD students. So it's this ability of like, the amount of deliverables that a PhD can create. Um, it's, it's very high compared to any other kind of professional, even if they have even if they can write better, like, it's okay. Most companies are, are going, everything you write is going to go through editing and fact-checking. But most of the time what they need from a medical writer is this ability to condense data, to absorb the critical thinking, like make a sound decision in terms of how you're going to express a data and not another, or what's more important on this organization um, organization skills and those are the things that we do all the time in our PhD we always uh, because we're in this bubble in academia we think that everybody does that because all of the other PhDs and postdoc in my lab do that so the general population <laughs> that no problem not true this yeah. is very rare and it's very specific from PhDs and the other thing that happens with working from home and something we're seeing a lot during the pandemic is it takes a specific kind of personality to work from home and being successful working from home. So I, I told you at the beginning when I was telling my story that when I was writing my thesis, I could start at eight and finish at 11 and write consistently for hours and hours in my home and just stop to have lunch. This is a level of discipline that it's also pretty rare. There's people who, have, when they have to work from home, they get distracted by a lot of things. They just can't focus any kind of thing. Um, it's, it's difficult for them to come with a strategy. And this is one of the problems we're seeing with most of the population working from home right now. And I think like, this was something I, I discovered I was a natural for. I, I'm not saying every PhD has, has it, but I think every PhD has the ability and the discipline to set schedule and set a strategy to still get things delivered, even with these distractions they get working from home. And once again, we might take it from for granted. It is not. It is rare. It is very rare. And, you know, I... I w I'm always 
taken back to, I think, the statistic that we've all heard of or something similar to the fact that most people uh, never read another book after undergrad or that very few ever read another book after, after high school. So if you, if, you, if you think deeply about some of those statistics, you'll see why you are so valuable as a PhD. The problem is you're just surrounded by other PhDs or you naturally gravitate towards you know, higher level professionals, people who are information seekers, who have a growth mindset, and you think, oh, this is, this is everybody. Everybody reads or listens to audiobooks or consumes information. No, they do not. Uh, most people don't even consume information online in terms of reading, right? They might play video games or whatever, and nothing against video games, but I'm talking about reading and, uh, of course, writing and editing, which are all very connected. So some stats just to show you uh, how rare you, you are, uh, and some of them might be more relevant, some of them less. Uh, one third of high school graduates never read another book for the rest of their lives. That's 30% of the population. So after the age of, uh, we'll say roughly 18 years old, 30% of people never read another book. Uh, and it's not just people who live in rural communities. Uh, it's not just people who... Uh, you know, might be outside of a, a first world country. This is, these are people who have attended a school at that level. 42% of undergrads never read another book after they graduate. 42%, so now we're closing in on 50%. 80, 80% of households did not buy a book last year. 70% of adults have not been into a bookstore. I mean, I don't know how they're tracking virtual stuff here. In the last, this is in the last five years, though. And then finally, 57% of books that are purchased are not read to completion. Now, you can correlate that, uh, of course, and I'd love to see the, the data. It's got to be out there somewhere. Uh, to people who have read an article, <laughs> right? Or who, like Alejandra said, can read multiple articles or abstracts, distill it down, and, and do all of this within a few hours. It is extremely valuable. You can get paid well a lot for doing this as long as you understand uh, you know, what the roles are so you have a target that you can hit. We talk about this all the time. It doesn't matter how intelligent you are, how many skills you have, how driven you are. You can't hit a target you don't set. So you, do you actually know what the job titles are in medical writing, for example? And then are you, do you know how to sell yourself? Do you know how to become visible? Are you networking? If people can't find you, they don't know you exist, they can't pay you a lot for writing or editing from home, even if they wanted to. Uh, so Alejandro, I think something to close, close with here would be to kind of review the different job titles uh, that, that medical writers can have, what, what they can do as medical writers. Um, you mentioned uh, being a translator. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? And then I'll, I'll read through a list here and kind of cherry pick some for us to discuss in a bit more detail. But let's start with trans translating. What, what is that like? Well, if you speak more than a language, it's very funny. It's not funny. It's a lot of fun. Sorry. Um, I, translating, it's basically that. And it's taking um, information in, that's written in one language and translating to another language, making sure that it conveys the same message. And this is something there's a lot of opportunities that you can do that. Uh, I'm going to give two. The first one is if you live in a non-English speaking country, it's very common that all the academic publications in that country, even though they publish their articles in English, they need the abstract, at least the abstract part of that article to be translated to the language of that country. And that's how I worked. For because here in Latin America, every, every academic publication has to be published. The full article is published in English, but the abstract has to be published in Spanish and Portuguese. So I would take the article that an Indian lab would submit to a, to a magazine or a, a journal here in Colombia in English, and I, I would translate that, that, uh, that abstract to Spanish and Portuguese. That's one. Another one that's important is in terms of regulatory writing, it's, um, and this is especially important in Europe, um, because in Europe, they, they have this, the EMA, that's the regulatory agency for Europe, the European Union, 
which is each sorry each country has its own regulatory body and they have to have paperwork in english and in the local language so you, that, there's a lot of opportunity just translating these documents to different uh languages and the more you speak the better because they can hire one person to do five or six documents instead because the european union has over 14 official languages right now and for to to approve one drug in all the european union you're going to need to translate those documents to all of those languages so there's a lot of opportunity there um, i'm sure there's a lot more examples but those are the two that come to mind yeah, and I think even that's surprising for uh, a lot of our uh, listeners that, you know, being able to speak a few different languages is highly valuable for this specific uh, career track. And, and I, I like the example um, of abstracts, right? Like that, that makes a lot of sense where an abstract comes out, whatever country it comes out from, needs to be translated, uh, at least the abstract, uh, to, to a particular country's language. Yeah. Um, I also Can I add something really, really quick about that? And this was something like uh, working as a translator was very good for me in terms of confidence because I, as I said, I had this, I had this crisis that I was never going to be valuable because I wasn't a native English speaker. And in the end, the fact that even though I speak English with accent, the fact that I can write and work in three languages ended up being not a liability, but an advantage. Wow. Yeah, great points. And I also want to pick your brain a bit on an, another uh, job underneath the medical writing career umbrella. Uh, specifically, uh, what is the difference between working in and we touched on this just uh, briefly earlier, you know, regulatory versus marketing. So I think a lot of PhDs, they don't think they want to work in marketing, but there, there's a lot of work in this particular field, uh, creating a white paper, which is uh, a paper that might be posted on the website. It might only be on the website. It might be downloadable for a particular company. Uh, a lot of companies partner with key opinion leaders or clinicians or other researchers uh, to produce data using their medical device, for example. And then they want to publish a, a white paper. It's not a peer-reviewed academic journal, but it's a, a white paper. It's, it's a bit more uh, structured, a bit more professional, a bit more data-focused than something else that might be in a company's website. Uh, but it is under this marketing umbrella. Uh, so in your experience, have you, you have any experience writing uh, more marketing-based content? And if so, how is it different than, say, uh, an academic deliverable or a regulatory deliverable? So I haven't had uh, any experience myself, but what, um, what I can say about marketing is it can be very enjoyable just because of the freedom you have. It, and you asked me to compare it with regulatory. Uh, when you see regulatory writing or the regulatory documents, these, are, these have set rules. And that's going to happen also if you go to medcoms, for example. There are set rules that you have, there, there's a structure to an academic paper that you have to follow to a poster. Whereas if you go to marketing, it's a little bit like understanding the science that's happening in your, in your company and thinking how you want to translate, how to want to sell that and help the public understand what your company is doing that's helping them possibly so it's going to be a lot more it can be a lot more fun just because you have you don't have as many constraints and as you said you can do a white paper but you can also do like this social media uh how 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 are you going like if you're launching a product how are you going to catch the attention of the public in in a tweet that's 120 characters or something this requires a level of creativity and it's completely valuable. So I think it's, I never done it myself, but I was very interested in the marketing part of things just because of the freedom you have and the ability you have to show your creativity. Absolutely. And on the other side of the spectrum, regulatory writing, how, how would this compare to uh, marketing uh, writing or I guess marketing communications or even academic writing? Sorry, so um, regulatory is 
completely the other end of the spectrum. And I also haven't done it myself, basically because I think that it's not as creative. Although many regulatory writers would disagree, they feel like they can use their creativity. But the thing is when you're writing for a regulatory body, there's a set list of documents for every, every step you have to take, uh, whether it is developing a product, launching a product, or keeping a product in the market. You're going to have a, a full set of documents that need to be um, completed for this whatever step you're trying to achieve. So you're not going to come up with which is the best way to convince the FDA to approve your new medical device. Mm. Instead, you're going to have these forms that you're going to have to fill with all the information. And here is where another transferable skill that many PhD have and many PhDs overlook coming, comes into play in its attention to detail. This can be massive documents, like 100 pages long, and you have to review all of this to make sure there's nothing missing and nothing out of place. So it is completely valuable. This attention to detail, this ability to complete such massive documents in the right way can make or break a clinical trial that, as you know, Losing a clinical trial can be losing years and millions of investment for a company. So it is crucial that it is well done, all these regulatory documents. Yeah, well said. And uh, again, you, you, you could start to understand that if there's all of these different types of specific medical writing uh, jobs and job titles, that there's going to be a lot of different types of companies that will hire you just for writing and editing and this is something that you can walk into and be incredibly respected for doing because of your skills. You, you've, you've elevated your skill set of researching and finding credible information, uh, your ability to process information as you read it. You can read and understand and synthesize information and data better than anyone. And then you can write it and repackage it for different audiences and edit it better than anybody and get paid a lot for doing it by a lot of different companies. I do want to go through some of these different job titles uh, underneath the medical writing umbrella. It's not just medical writer, uh, science journalist, scientific journal editor. Of course, you could replace scientific for engineering journal editor uh, and so forth, or, or social science journal editor, scientific marketing writer, science outreach coordinator. There's a lot of crossover between medical writing and project management. Uh, a lot of project managers have to do a lot of technical writing. A lot of technical writers also do a lot of project management. Communications director, medical affairs manager or writer, editor-in-chief, translator, which we discussed, public relations manager, scientific engagement lead, scientific operations manager, scientific writer, knowledge management lead, social digi digital and or enter enterprise communications manager, product communications manager, science policy analyst or just policy analyst, uh, media relations specialist, community engagement coordinator, and event or virtual event manager. Last question, Alejandra. What are the skills that do you, you think would put a PhD level job candidate ahead of another job candidate for medical writing? If you could go back and tell yourself, oh, these are the words, the skills to put on my resume, my LinkedIn profile to communicate when I'm networking, having interviews that would really make me stand out, what would you suggest? Well, I'm co I cover some of them here, but the first one is communication skills. And this might be, this might sound as a given, you'd be surprised of how many people just forget that they have amazing written and oral communication skills. Uh, as you said, project management, time management, uh, attention to detail, critical thinking, research and analysis. Um, those are seven that come to mind. I think all of those are things that we develop during our PhDs. Oh, the, the no synthesis, I already said that. Uh, and, and we might give them, like take them for granted in our PhD. They're so important. They really differentiate a PhD level candidate. And, and that's the important thing. Like, you have to understand that it's not only writing. As I said, you have to organize 
times to meeting with clients, to talk about the audience. So the time management aspect is super important. The project management as aspect also super important. It's very rare that you're going to have one project finish, start one other. You have to juggle different projects just like you did during your PhD. Uh, the ability of you have some missing information, knowing where to look, that research ability, the synthesis ability, taking massive amounts of information and getting the insights in record time. This is something PhDs excel at and it's super valuable. So yeah, those, those are the, the transferable skills. And if I can add something just to finish, yes. since, because we covered the, type, the audiences, the types, I also want to talk about the job arrangement that you can find in medical writing that I think are super important, also make this career path so attractive. You can work full-time for a company on site. You can work full-time for a company remote. You can work completely freelance on a client basis. Uh, you can work full-time with your clients or part-time. This is very important because uh, many PhDs who have small children don't know how to break into industry. And this arrangement of having some like two or three clients that only take some hours of their day is a great way to have industry and relevant experience, but still maintaining this parenthood aspect and spending time with their children. So I think this is super important. And I also want to highlight because of my experience as a freelancer, if you decide to do freelancing or consulting, just keep in mind, you're going to learn so much because you are going to be your own small business. So you'll have to learn something about laws and regulations for the, the working as a, as a consult, um, contractor in the, in the country you're living. You might have to, but the time management aspect, finances, you're going to learn a lot. So there's a lot of things that you have to, like working as a medical writer because they have all of these options of employment, it's going to give you the opportunity of also develop some other skills that are super important, whatever you want to do in your career next after you gain some years of experience. Completely agree. Getting into a medical writing uh, career is, it, even if it's not your first choice, it is a very intelligent choice because you can transition to uh, any different career path afterwards and, and whatever that career path is will lean on those two key transferable skills you have as a PhD, the ability to uh, collect uh, and analyze and, and, and even uh, go as far as uh, quote unquote cleaning or wrangling information and data and then to be able to analyze it and, and uh, regurgitate and package it for a particular audience so they can understand it. Uh, thank you very much, Alejandra. Congratulations on, on your success. Uh, to everybody listening, if you want to learn more about medical writing, become a medical writer, you can go to uh, just uh, do a simple search online for our advanced program, the Medical Writing Organization. Uh, we also have our, our flagship program, if you're still not sure which career path is right for you, the Cheeky Scientist Association, which you can learn more about at www.phdsgethired.com. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. I'm Isaiah Henkel, the founder of Cheeky Scientist and the creator of the Cheeky Scientist Association. I wanted to quickly tell you that memberships into the association are available to PhDs listening to Cheeky Scientist Radio by using the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com, P-H-D-S-G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D.com. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser, scroll down to the orange membership button and click on it, then enter the coupon code CheekyRadio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. That's Cheeky Radio, C-H-E-E-K-Y-R-A-D-I-O. Remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Are you worried about the rapidly shrinking job market? 
like me, have you been seeing more and more articles on universities shutting down their research labs, furloughing employees, cutting postdocs and TAs, and even withdrawing PhD student funding? If so, it might be wise to start taking steps to protect your PhD career. You've worked very hard and very intelligently for years to establish yourself, but likely you have not reached your full career potential yet. Perhaps you're not even getting respect and you're not getting the rewards that you deserve. The good news is you can get into an industry career where you can get paid well for doing meaningful work. All you need is the right knowledge and the right network. The Cheeky Scientist Association gives you lifetime access to the world's number one PhD-only job search training platform with multiple courses and the PhD-only job referral network of over 10,000-plus industry PhDs. Now is your chance to become a lifetime member for 20% off of the association. Just use the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com. P-H-D-S-G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D.com. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser, scroll to the orange membership button, and click on it, then enter the coupon code CheekyRadio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. No recurring monthly fees, no recurring annual fees, Nobody else offers this. PhDsgethired.com. Use the coupon code CheekyRadio. Remember your value as a PhD, and remember that knowledge is power, and your network is your net worth. Oh, 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 oh.